We're in the middle of a sermon series that's called Into the Mess. We're looking at people in the New Testament who had messy lives. And in each case, when they encounter Jesus, he brings them out of that messy situation into new life. So far, we've looked at some pretty amazing characters. A man who was possessed with a legion of demons who is so tortured that he picks up rocks and he bruises himself with them. Mary Magdalene, who is so lost in grief that she mistakes the risen Christ for the gardener. A woman who is so grateful for Jesus' healing that she washes his feet with her tears. Jesus' father, Joseph, who is utterly terrified by the scandal of Mary's pregnancy. Now, here's what I want to say from the outset. If you have stuff in your life, please know that you're not alone. Many of the people Jesus met had lives that were out of control. They were overwhelmed. They were lost. They had no idea where to turn. But here's the important point. They were not hopeless. Because in every case, Jesus turned their lives around. And so the take-home message of this entire series is that there is always hope that a messy life can be turned around. And I think that today's sermon is powerful evidence of this because in today's sermon we're looking at a man whose life was about as dark as it is possible to get. He was a criminal who had been arrested and tried and given the death penalty and condemned to crucifixion and yet there was hope even for him. The reading is from Luke 23 verses 32 to 43. Let us listen to what God's Spirit is saying to us today. Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts on this your holy word be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. If we are going to begin to understand this passage, we have to know a little bit about crucifixion. Obviously, crucifixion is important to us as Christians, but I have found that many people don't really understand what crucifixion was 
The first thing to know about crucifixion is that it caused as much physical and emotional pain as possible, and that was by design. Because if there had been a way to make death more painful, the Romans would have done that. They had been refining crucifixion over many centuries, continually, continually making it more and more devastating. And thus we can conclude that a person being crucified was experiencing literally as much pain as it was possible to experience. And of course, the Romans themselves understood how painful it was. And this is why it was against the law to crucify a Roman citizen. The philosopher Cicero said this, The very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his ears, his eyes. In other words, crucifixion is what Romans did to other people, foreigners, slaves. They could be crucified because they had no value, but we would never do such a thing to our own people. It's also important to know that there were easier ways to kill a person. Crucifixion took a lot of time and effort. A cross had to be built. The man had to carry his cross through the city. This, of course, meant soldiers had to accompany him. The man's body had to be nailed to the wood. His arms tied with ropes around the cross beams. This required people and materials and time and energy and money, which leads to an important question. If there were easier, cheaper ways to kill people, why did Romans practice crucifixion? The answer is simple, to send a message. The cross, more than anything else, was an advertisement. And that's why crucifixions were always done in public places, along public roads, because it was a billboard. It was a sign saying, do not mess with Rome, because if you do, this is what will happen to you. In fact, the main point of crucifixion was not to kill a person. It was to humiliate them. And this is why the crucified man was first stripped naked because public nakedness was deeply embarrassing. This is why the man was paraded through the city on his way to the cross. This is why he was mocked and beaten and spit on and then left to die in public, which usually lasted a few days. This too was part of the humiliation. People had to watch the man's body being slowly eaten by birds. The point was power. Now, we have to get this if we are going to understand this story, because today we're going to be talking about kingdoms, realms of power, and there ultimately are only two kinds of kingdoms. There's kingdoms of human power, and then there's the kingdom of God. And of course, history is full of kingdoms of human power. I mean, almost too many to name Rome, Egypt, Babylon, Persia. Even the Jews had a kingdom briefly when David and Solomon and Saul led them. And many Jews wanted that kingdom back. This is why there were so many Jewish rebellions against Rome. These eventually became so serious that in the year 70 AD, Rome decided it had had enough of these pesky Jews. It sent in a a large army, it killed 100,000 people, and it destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. If you've ever been to the Wailing Wall, that is the only part of the temple that is still left standing after the Romans destroyed it. Here's my point. Everybody wanted a kingdom. And that includes the two men who were crucified with Jesus. Our reading calls them criminals. 
which is kind of a vague term. What crime did they commit? The text doesn't say a lot. However, we know they were crucified. And that actually tells us quite a bit. That is the reason I spent some time talking about crucifixion. You need to know that Rome did not crucify ordinary criminals because it took so much time and energy and money. Rome was not going to waste all of that time and effort on a common thief. Crucifixion was reserved for people who were a threat to Roman authority. In other words, rebels, political leaders, and certainly anyone who called themselves a king. Can you see why now Jesus was killed this way? Because people called him king. People called him Messiah. People called him Lord. And for the Romans, there was only one Lord, and that was Caesar. But what about these two other men? They were crucified, which means they were not common criminals. In one way or another, Rome thought that they were threatening. One translation actually calls them revolutionaries, which suggests that these men were freedom fighters. They were trying to create a new kingdom. They had a dream of a new political order. They hated Rome and all it represented. They hated seeing poor people enslaved and murdered. They hated all these taxes they had to pay. They hated seeing their land being taken away, all of which is perfectly understandable. And a lot of these people believed that a Messiah was going to come to create a new kingdom. But here's the thing that you have to understand. They thought that this Messiah would be like Caesar. I mean, obviously he would be better than Caesar. But in terms of the methods that he would employ, he would take power the way Caesar did. He would beat the Romans at their own game. He would kill them. He would imprison them. He would tax them. He would crucify them. Because everybody, Greek and Jew and pagan alike, thought that God was power. And now we can see why everybody made fun of Jesus. He had no power. Which meant, obviously, he could not be the Messiah. Let's look at the way that people mock him in this story. First, the religious leaders. They say, let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God. In other words, if Jesus were the Messiah, he would have power like Caesar. He never would die on a cross. Next, the soldiers mock him. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They even put a sign above his head that said, this is the king of the Jews. You can see that they were having a good laugh at all of this. Look at this pitiful man who calls himself a king, blood all over him, gasping for air. Rome had total power over him. Next, we come to one of the rebels being crucified. Even he mocks Jesus. Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and me. Again, this man believes in power the way Rome has it. He might want a better kingdom, but it's still a worldly kingdom. Here's what we are seeing. All of these people, Jew and Greek alike, all of them imagine that God is going to save the world through power, which again makes a lot of sense. But then we suddenly hear another voice. It's the voice of the second man who is being crucified. He turns to this first man and he says, you have it all wrong. We are getting what we deserve. We are guilty. 
but this man Jesus is innocent. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So again, he says two things. He says he's guilty. That's number one. And then number two, he asked Jesus to come into his kingdom. And right then and there, this man expresses the gospel in all of its beauty and its power because what the gospel is, is salvation for people who admit that they need it. If you go back to the beginning of the gospels, when Jesus first comes onto the scene, he says one thing again and again. These are the first words out of his mouth in the gospel of Mark. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. That is the message that he shared. That is what he said when he went around to all of these different towns. Repent, the kingdom of God is near. That is what this second man understands. He is dying after a life of rebellion. He's put all of his dreams into fighting Rome, but he suddenly realizes that while he was pursuing an angry vision of righteousness, he lost sight of his own sin. He suddenly face to face with death, and he thinks to himself, I mean, it is true that Rome is bad, but you know, I am too. And and I'm about to meet God, and I have to be honest, maybe for the first time in my life, Jesus, I am guilty. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And he's saved like that. Today you will be with me in paradise. This man reminds me of a pastor and activist named the Reverend Bob Fu. Reverend Fu grew up in China during the Cultural Revolution. And this is when the Communist Party was the kingdom of power for people in China. And what was interesting is that the Communist Party very deliberately took the place of God in people's lives. Reverend Fu said that when he was in school as a little boy, he was explicitly told, there is no God and there is no savior except for the Communist Party. They knew exactly what they were doing. They understood that there is a human longing for the divine. They were going to satisfy that need for people. Reverend Fu initially bought into this. He was an atheist. But as he saw the real effects of communism on people's lives, he became became disillusioned with communism, and he began to be an activist for democracy. He was part of the Tiananmen Square protests, And that's when his life got really hard. The government came after him. His friends betrayed him. He became suicidal. In these dark moments, he found himself alone in his apartment. He picked up a book that some missionaries had given his roommate, and he started to read about the gospel. And he says that he was overwhelmed with Christ's love. And then something interesting happened. He said that he realized that although democracy is a much better system than communism, it couldn't save him either. Because no political system, no kingdom of this world, no matter how fair it might be, is eternal. And what our souls crave is eternal life. That was the beginning of Bob Fu's journey to the ministry. He was able to escape China, and he now leads a church in the United States. He does some wonderful work right now exposing the treatment of religious minorities in China. Here is my point. His story shows us that Jesus' kingdom is different. 
And that's what the second criminal saw as he was dying next to Christ. That no matter how good his political dreams were, if God was not at the center of them, they were idols. I mean, maybe they would help some people have better material lives. They might really give people more freedom, which are wonderful goals. But if God is not at the center of those efforts, then we will be helping people's bodies, but letting their souls die. And this is why repentance has to come first. Bob Fu suddenly understood that although all of these communists were awful sinners, he was a sinner too. And he was only going to have true life if he did what Jesus asks us all to do. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. And I think his story is instructive for us because the same thing applies today. I mean, you may think that as long as you do something quote-unquote good with your life, that's enough. You work in the nonprofit world, you're a teacher, you're a doctor, you're a social worker, which are all wonderful things. But if God is not at the center of those efforts, then those good things can become idols. They will feed your body, and yet they'll starve your soul. If we want to go even deeper, the real truth is that all of us have to serve something. We all need a Savior. Even atheists long for a Savior. The only question is, which kingdom do you serve? Do do you join Jesus' kingdom or a communist kingdom or even a democratic kingdom? That might be better than the other kinds of kingdoms, but none of these kingdoms are from God. Jesus' kingdom is unique. Every other kingdom is based in power. That's why they mocked Jesus. He seemed to have no power. Rome beat him around like a cat playing with a toy. He seemed to be a picture of weakness. But what was really going on on the cross? What was really happening is that God's love was working through that apparent weakness. What did Jesus say from the cross? He looked out at this world of sin, the sadism, the ruthlessness, the envy, and he prayed for us. God, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's what God's kingdom looks like, unconditional love and mercy. Now, we are supposed to be so moved and humbled by this love that none of us deserve that we work to try to bring that vision to earth. We become the hands and feet of God who loved us so much that he sent his only son to the cross even as we were actively mocking him. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Let's pray. God, we are moved by love that we don't deserve We pray that you would penetrate our hearts with the conviction of sin so that we might be open to the reality of redemption. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.